Hello, this is Toby Haddock and welcome to this edition of Who's Round, which is part two of my chat with designer Roger Murray Leach. I was in uh, the, the group I was in that was headed by a chap called Tony Abbott, uh, who again sadly dead now. But Tony was extraordinary, uh, he, a huge, huge talent. And um, his work was enormously admired throughout the BBC. He was probably one of the top designers. Uh, and he, he was. And he was extremely stubborn. And he would... Uh, what they used to do within the groups is... You, he, there were various heads of group. I can't remember how many. 10, 12. And each group had eight designers and assistants working within that group. And then every year or so, they would change people around from group to group. But Tony wouldn't have any of that. And he would refuse to accept people if he didn't like their work. <laughs> and he wouldn't let them go once he got them in the group. So I, I can count myself very fortunate. He did like what I was doing. And I was in his group, I would think, for oh, over 50% of my time at the BBC. So maybe seven, eight, nine years. Uh, surrounded by people who, who um, whose work he really liked and so it, it, there was a great atmosphere and in there and people were not afraid to criticize you either you know if they did if you'd done something they liked they would say they would come in in the morning and tell you that it looked really terrific or it looked like a piece of you know what were you thinking of and the other thing was that you uh the, the after lunch the, the, it was almost kind of habitual that you would walk around the studios to see what everybody else was doing, what the other sets were. There were eight stages, studios there. So the, uh, certain times of the day, you'd see members of the design department wandering around looking at each other's work, which, of course, again, is, is a wonderful experience because you, you, you may not... You may not want to copy something, but you'll get an idea and think, oh, that's an interesting idea. If I did so-and-so, I could make that work in a different way for this. So there was a lot of interchange of ideas within the department, which was extremely exciting and, and cre created a wonderful atmosphere. Because we talked before we started recording about the, the sort of infrastructure of the BBC that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, so, and about your working methods that were a direct result of the way that the, the place was structured and the atmosphere of the place. So maybe if you describe the sort of working day um, in terms of your job when, when putting a programme together. That you well, it, it, it varied. It, um, w normally one got in around about 9, 9.30 and you would be designing, drawing, 
we ha we did all our own set decorating, which was great experience as well. So you didn't have set decorators; you had buyers you went out with. It was budgeting, um, and that took up though that prep period, and it could be anything from a month to a fortnight to get a program together. If it was a big play, it might be slightly longer. Uh, when you came to the studio days, um, they were extremely long for the art department. Uh, it was not unusual to get, get in at four o'clock in the morning because that's when they were putting the set up. Uh, the, night the night crew would come in and start erecting the set. Uh, if it was a very complex set, you might be lucky and persuade them to let you have um, a nighttime painter or a nighttime carpenter to help construct the set. If it, if it was a repeat set, then inevitably there would be damage because these sets were taken down, the joints were just, I had a knife put down them because they were covered in, they were just paper joints. Knife put down them and they were shoved on a trolley, very often not terribly carefully. So bits would get knocked off or scratches. So you'd get the set put up, you'd try and get it dressed because again, you'd have night prop crew who would come in and help you dress it. You'd, you'd have dressing plans, but actually if you wanted it really properly done the way you'd imagined it, you'd have to be there too. And then you'd, as soon as the day crew came on, you'd be over there trying to get a painter and a, a carpenter standby to come and actually repair bits of damage. And then the uh, production crew would get in about 9, 9.30. Uh, the artists would get in around about 9.30, 10, 10 o'clock. You'd go straight into rehearsal. Uh, very often, uh, you might start recording early. It depended what the, the program was. Some of it, you'd rehearse the whole thing and then run the scenes. Um, Sometimes the recording time was just all in the evening. So you'd rehearse all through the day. If there were things that needed changing or sets that needed moving around because you'd recorded something in the morning, uh, you then have to, when the, the studio broke for lunch, that would be the time, the only time you could then get down to the studio and make those alterations or redress a set or finish something off if it hadn't quite been finished in time. So an awful lot of eating was done on the hoof. I, I, you know, you spent your time really living out of the assembly areas eating grated cheese sandwiches while in one hand while you're trying to dress a set with the other. And that would go on through the day and you would be there then till the end of recording, which would be 10 o'clock. You may have to clear something off the set or you may have to redress for the following day. So quite often you wouldn't finish till um, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night there and then you'd be back in, okay, not quite so early the following morning, maybe 6 o'clock for other changes. Uh, we worked very long hours, but it was, the atmosphere was wonderful and people did it because they loved every minute of it. And the, the, there was this freedom that was given to you to experiment and try things, uh, which was invaluable for, for later life. And you got to know all the other departments and you, you got to know how they work. Well, and I mean, I, I sort of feel always feel guilty when I track down people who've had 
huge careers and just talked about Doctor Who. And interesting, your Wikipedia entry says you are best known for his work on Doctor Who and Blake Seven. I suspect that's probably best known in terms of people who write Wikipedia on the <laughs> internet and in terms of the industry as a BAFTA-nominated um, film designer. So if you, if you were writing your own biography or if you were commissioning a series of <laughs> non-profit-making podcasts to talk about work that actually that you would perhaps want to shove the spotlight on a little bit more than the often overexposed Doctor Who, what, what are some of the things that you think, you know, you look back on and go, oh, I really, I really cracked that, or that was a particular challenge that I enjoyed, or that was a particular job that was, that was very worthwhile? I think a lot of uh, uh, film work, a lot of it's worthwhile. I mean, if I look, it wasn't the most, it wasn't the, ha the easiest film I ever worked on, and I did, I was the art director, not the designer on it, but, but you know, you look back at the Killing Fields and think, golly, I'm proud to have worked on that, although I had a pretty hard time on it. Uh, I, then I look back at things like Lethal Hero, and, uh, and that was a joy, but at the same time, it had, we had problems, uh, you, and you always do. Uh, Fish Called Wonder was, was great, and a, a, a lovely atmosphere, but again, there's there was always problems. There are always those moments where you think, I don't know why I'm doing this job, really. Well, something like the Killing Fields, you know, perhaps, perhaps for, the, for the layman listening, um, yes, you're art director on that as opposed to designer, so what's the difference and how come you did that for that particular film? I'd just done, I'd just done Local Hero, uh, and I had, and there was some doubt, uh, I wasn't working, there was some doubt about, uh, w whether the chap who had been approached to design it was in fact going to do it and uh, Ian Smith who was the producer said to me would you like who I'd worked with on Local Hero and I'd known him for a long time would I, would I come in and talk to him about, about possibly designing the killing fields and I went in, took the script away thought this sounds fascinating and he ran me up and he said, "Look, I'm sorry, but the the chap who was who is who was going to design it is, in fact, going to design it. Uh, he's he's agreed the money and that's all done and what have you." So I said, "Okay, well, I'll pop in. It was a Putnam's offices, and I, I'll pop in and return the script and all the information I've got." Went in there, and Roy Walker was was in the office. And we chatted, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, right now, nothing. And he said, would you like to come on this as art director? And I said, yeah, I'd love to, because it was a fascinating project. Mm. So that was it, really. So basically, the production designer has the vision and has... Uh, and is the immediate link to the director and they work together on how it's going to look and where they're going to shoot it and what have you. And the art director, in theory, has an input as well, but he's the guy who makes the production designer's work and ideas happen, gets them drawn up, gets them constructed, where with this, the production designer permanently there overseeing the whole thing. And, I mean, having come out of the, the BBC, we haven't actually really covered that. You, you, what, what made you leave the BBC and, um, you know, did, 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 you, did you miss it or, or, or are films 
because of their higher budgets and things like that? Is, is, is that a more fertile ground for you? Uh, I'd, I had done uh, a thing for the BBC called Speed King about uh, Sir Malcolm Campbell, mm -hmm. uh, directed by Fergie Fairfax. And uh, it was, uh, was a, a great success. And Fergie said to me, rang me up one day and he said, what are you doing? now would you fancy coming to do to design the wilderness years for me which is but you'd have to go freelance and i rang him i, I thought I th without thinking i said no look, life's you know life's my life's in chaos at the moment i really i don't think i can I've, my marriage is just broken up uh you know i'm living out of a suitcase and i really don't think i can i can think about moving so, th but thank you very much. And I put a phone down, and one of the other guys in the office said to me, "You're mad. This, you know, this is the, surely this is the ideal time when your life is in chaos. What better time than to make a total change?" And I said, "Yeah, you're absolutely right." So, <laughs> immediately picked up the phone, <laughs> was still warm, and rang him back, and I said, "Did you mean that?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "Okay, come on." And that was that. And you got a BAFTA nomination for that. Yeah. Do they, are those things important? Do they help? I think it, it depends. A lot, I mean, particularly in America, everybody loves an award. Um, we were unfortunate. Uh, I mean, it was a it was a joint effort that that thing. Uh, I had a wonderful set decorator. Again, God, everybody's dead. Um, and it was. It was a huge thing. I mean, we had hundreds of sets. It was six months shooting for eight hours of cut film. Some of it was in the States, some was in Scotland. Um, yes, I think sometimes it, it, it awards help. We, as I say, we were unfortunate in that we were up against... Oh, God, the bride said we visited... And that walked off with every pot that year. Uh, I think we actually probably should have. We could we could well have picked up the, the prize for that because the, the, just the quantity and quality of the work on it was terrific. But we didn't. You can't. Can't look back. So. No, but when you and you have the collaborations on on. Fish Called Wonder, which I mean, I seem to recall Fish Called Wonder coming out of nowhere. I mean, when, when it was a massive success, but when you were working on it, uh, was was it very much a sort of smaller project than it, than it ended I, up being? I was staggered, actually, how, uh, the, the, what a success it was. I suppose, in a way, it had genuine wit, wit in it. It was, it was what, for me, is lacking in an awful lot of, of uh, particularly television comedy now. Some some genuine and real wit, and um, Charlie Crichton, who was, I mean, I learned so much from Charlie. He was extraordinary man. He was a, he had been an editor. We, if I say we never shot a, f a foot, we didn't need. That's not strictly true, but he he had the whole thing edited in his head before before we, we even shot a scene. 
so he knew exactly where he wanted the performance, where the camera was going to be looking. And if somebody said, well, actually, that guy's performance there wasn't very good, you know, we could reshoot that, he'd say, don't worry about that. I'll do that later. I've got the shot I want. This will be on this. Was extraordinary. Really, really fascinating to work with him. Well, it's interesting you mentioned directors because um, uh, I think Doctor Who's can, 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 you know, the Doctor Who fan can always identify who directed the different, uh, the, the different stories by their different styles. And you worked under uh, uh, Rodney Bennett, did Arthur Space Alternate Experiment, Michael Bryant did Revenge of the Cybermen. But your your biggest collaborations were probably with with David Maloney. Yeah. Um, Planet of Evil and Talons. So um, and Deadly Assassin. So, so what are your memories of, of David, who I think, like you, like Philip Finchkip, like Robert Holmes, like Tom Baker, everyone seemed to be at the height of their powers in that particular period of Doctor Who. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I can't say it was down to one individual person or one individual thing. I think it was just a coming together. And David was a joy to work with and had a, a wonderful wit. And, uh, and and a great way with actors and very receptive and w w when you're working with David you'd laugh a lot of the time and just such a nice man and you've, you've sort of fitted me in because you're still working and you're working on projects so what, what what's what's coming up for you now that you've, you've managed to find time for for this yes yeah, see when your marriage broke up you got a BAFTA nomination and mine did I've done a silly free podcast about Doctor Who um, so what are you working on there? I'm working on a, um, a film, um, a feature film about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who? Yeah. <laughs> he was. Uh, he was born in 1917. He he studied theology after his his brother was killed during the First World War. Absolutely devastated family. He was a came from a very um, highly regarded family in Berlin. Uh, as I say, studied theology, became a theologist, travelled the world, went to America, uh, was hugely influenced by the, the gospel uh, church in America. Came back and in the early... 30s was one of the first people to actually stick his head above the parapet and say this guy Hitler is no good uh, tried to make as many uh, as big a stand as he could against the influence of Nazism in the church when it became the Reichswehr uh, when they replaced a lot of the crucifixes with the crucifix with the swastika in the middle uh, he he set up seminaries and churches uh, in opposition to the Reichskirche, which were very rapidly closed down by the Gestapo. And he became, he fell under suspicion as a, as a, as a naysayer against the regime. But because of his family position, and he, his father was a, an eminent psychiatrist, he, he was kind of allowed a certain amount of safety in his, uh, Friends and family thought he was going to be conscripted. He was a pacifist. They got him out to America where he lasted a month and said, it's no good me sitting here saying, I, this is all evil, this is all wrong. If I'm not going to do anything about it. So he went back to Germany. 
again tried to set up new seminaries. They were again closed down. And uh, on the advice of his brother-in-law, uh, Hanston Yanni, uh, joined the ABFA, uh, which was the German military intelligence. And they were using him to get information out to the Allies because as a, a, a churchman, he could travel to ecumenical councils and uh, he helped get the Jews out to, of the country uh, and was getting information in and out and also trying to persuade the the uh, the British and the various governments to support those people who were standing against Hitler. Anyway, long story short, he joined the Abbot and then became uh, indirectly and indirectly involved in uh, one of the assassination plots. And he was arrested, uh, they thought, because initially, because it, he had been discovered, but it wasn't that at all. It was to do with the fact, the fact they found funds had been funneled out to Switzerland to support some of the Jews who had been allowed to escape, although the money would have theoretically been sent out um, for people to spy. Germany and Switzerland and he was arrested and he was kept in prison for two years um, and it's, it's not giving anything away but he he eventually oh three weeks before the end of the war his papers were discovered that uh, at Zingst that uh, showed that he had been had some involvement and just two, three weeks before, the, before he committed suicide. He was one of the last people that Hitler had directly murdered on his orders. So that's what that film's about. Not a comedy then. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a film about ma a man's fight with his own conscience. Um, about uh, somebody who is a pacifist, who knows that he actually has to do something, has to go against everything he believes for what he thinks is right in the end. And do you still have the same zeal for work now then that you've, you've always had to show, show no signs of stopping? I don't really want to actually. Um, I, I, no, I don't really want to stop. Well, and if, if you wanted the listeners of this to watch, they've all watched your Doctor Who episodes, they've probably all watched your D Blake 7 episodes as well, but if you were to ask them to watch something else of yours that, that you think shows your work in a particularly fine light, what would you direct them to? Well, I don't know, actually. The, the thing is, sometimes you can ha do a film with a lot of money that's got a lot of money behind it, and you produce the sets, and you know that you, you know, the sets are good and that the whole thing works. And then sometimes you do a film which has got absolutely no money at all, and you produce sets and people can't see the join and you th think I'm really proud of that because although we had absolutely nothing to do with it to do it with I did a, a little film about Florence Nightingale dramatized documentary a few years ago and we had to we had to build a set we build a set we had to produce a set that was um, the hospital in Scutari we'd be filming around Liverpool, and we found this underground reservoir 
Victorian reservoir. It was a bizarre place. It was all columns. And so we built this set in there. And it looks, and we, and we including the streets in Turkey, you know, the bazaar. And it was all, it was a horrible place to work. And we did it for next to nothing. But actually, I was really proud of that. So you, you know, it's difficult. Uh, for, for, for pleasure and joy, I suppose it has to be Local Hero, which was, which was just such fun. Which, of course, now has the cachet of having Peter Capaldi, who's the new Doctor Who in it. So. Absolutely, <laughs> which is rather fun, actually. I, I felt I should write to him and say, because it was his first thing he'd ever done, I think. And, uh, you know, say to him, what, what goes around comes around. It, it all leads to Doctor Who, much as we try to escape it during this conversation. Well, look, I, I only have the, the, the two final questions. The first is because you've kindly given your time and indeed picked me up from the station. Um, uh, what is the charity that you would like the listeners who haven't paid for this uh, to donate to? Um, during the Balkan crisis some years ago, uh, an, an army officer called Mark Cook, uh, many people have read about the fact that he... He, he came across this orphanage, which was uh, in the most, which was, he said, truly appalling, uh, where with children sort of virtually chained into their cage beds. And, and he, he, with some of his troops, they, they did what they could. And when he came home, he said to Carolyn, his wife, you know, I've got to go back. I, I can't. I can't get this out of my own mind. And he went back to the Balkans and he started a charity called Hope and Homes for Children. Uh, his idea being to, to close every orphanage, to try and get children back into, into homes. Uh, it's grown and grown and grown, but they still need money. They're all over that part of the, uh, of the world and into Africa as well. And... Uh, they have done an amazing job, uh, quite, quite. Uh, I, I'm, it's the sort of thing you you almost you wish you'd done yourself that you had to get up and go, because he has changed so many children's lives, uh, and uh, so that's it. Hope and homes for children, please. Uh, and the final question: We meet two weeks after the fiftieth anniversary of Doctor Who. This was done this year because it's the fiftieth anniversary of Doctor Who. Um, so what is your message to the Doctor Who fans who've been inspired by the show to listen to this podcast, among many other things? Um, God, I wish you'd tell me before you were going to ask that question. <laughs> I, I always spring that one. I, I honestly don't know. Is there a message? I don't know. Um, in the end, it's a bit of fun. And that, I think, was was its appeal in a way what I loved about the early ones were were that you had a Doctor Who figure who the figures there were and particularly up to when Tom finished who were figures of who were figures of authority in a way but eccentric uh, who children could trust they felt that children watching although they might have been hiding behind the sofa this was somebody who was going to get them out of the, out. They, they, it was a figure of authority in a way, uh, or, or a father figure in some ways. Whether that's still the case now, I don't know. I think it's more aimed at the teenagers, but so is all of television. Um, 
but it, in the end it was it was just a romp it was great fun well this has been great fun and as it's one of the last rolls of the dice for this podcast and I thought hey my Doctor Who always taught me to do that and, and to my surprise and gratitude you agreed so Roger Murray and each for your time and for your conversation thank you very much it's a pleasure my thanks to Roger whose charity is Hope and Homes for Children which is www.hopeandhomes.co.uk hopeandhomes all one word all small case .co.uk give if you can that would be very kind Uh, next up we have a chat that is I mean it's the ultimate actor experience actually I think it's the only who's round where both parties have been in collar and tie at no less the Garrick Club and uh, much thespianism is talked about Uh, and I was in heaven so I'm sure you will be too here's a brief trailer uh, to uh, leave you waiting until next time waiting with bated breath I hope until next time uh, and in the meantime thanks for listening please give to the charity if you can I'm on Twitter at Toby Haydock at T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E and uh, thanks for listening ta-ta you imagine the entire school in infant school junior school is, is, is in a semicircle in front of you and I said something I wasn't trying to be funny uh, but I said something that tickled their fancy and they all roared with laughter. And you could actually feel the strength of the laugh on your face. And I remember thinking, gosh, that's, you know, that's rather nice. I wonder if I could do it again. Um, and somehow or another, I had the sense to wait until the right moment. And I said it again. Said, I said something else, which got a, a, a huge roar and a round of applause. And I thought to myself, I rather like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and therein after, uh, particularly on radio, I was educated by the BBC, really, um, in, in all aspects, in poetry, in architecture, whatever, and certainly in drama. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, The Fourth Doctor Adventures. Doctor Who, return to Telos. Doctor, we must take action. We must save Gerald and the people of Krelos, defeat these Cybermen. There is nothing to fear. The Cybermen are coming. We've got to get out of here. Come on. The Doctor's arrival is imminent. It stopped now. You know, I once double-checked the exact location of the supposed last resting place of the Cybermen. You did? Mm, I did. We have travelled back to when I originally visited Telos. I was travelling with Victoria and Jamie. The warrior. Leela, we've got to get out of here. Once construction of our new cyber army is complete, the Doctor's ingenuity will make that army invincible. Big Finish. We love stories.